The voice in your ears is familiar, soft and non-threatening. A coworker, maybe? A friend? Who were they to you before, in your parallel life? You wish you could remember. All you know for sure right now is the angry sound of tires going slightly too fast for the dilapidated road, and the unwelcome certainty that you need to keep moving. Parallel Lives is your recondite role-playing resource, exploring systems outside the dungeon and off the beaten pathfinder. This episode is around 54 minutes long. Hey, and welcome to Parallel Lives. My name is Wednesday Sophia, and today I'm joined by Carrie and Hugh, and we are looking at Psy Run. Or Psy Star Run? And we are looking at Psy Run. It's there is written a star in there, though. Psy Asterisk Run. What does your grammar bible tell you about how we should pronounce inexplicable punctuation marks? And really, how we should format and typeset inexplicable punctuation marks? Because... I read this as some kind of mathematical operator because it is centered in the line rather it's like it's definitely psi star not psi asterisk so it represents like the outer product or some some other kind of like tensor operation hi my name is Wednesday Sophia <laughs> welcome to Parallel Lives damn it I'm gonna get some of this shtick on the podcast okay, oh okay. I didn't say that was gonna cut <laughs> so the only parts of punctuation are the period the comma the colon the semicolon the apostrophe the question mark the exclamation point parentheses brackets hyphen dash question marks so no inexplicable punctuation no asterisks no nothing we're on our own here all right. And today we are looking at Siren. <laughs> siren. Is, is it supposed to be like Siren, like Siren? I've wondered that myself. Oh, that God, just occurred to I me now. I don't think it is. And I have to say, like, I'm sense. removing like two of six stars on my review of this game, if that is the case. <laughs> Whoa. Whoa, six That's stars. That's a lot of um, stars to remove. Like also, out of six 10? out of ten? Really? Only six out of ten? That's fine. Yeah, but I don't think I've ever given anything higher than an eight out of ten. So. Okay, what's an eight out of ten? I don't know, an 8 out of 10 would be like Dogs in the Vineyard once I house rule out some things I don't like about Dogs in the Vineyard. Okay, sure. So probably I don't give most things more than about a 7 out of 10. Oh, Alright, that's fair. It's tough but fair. All games um, are imperfect. Sure, <laughs> that's a fact. That's a fact we know well here at this podcast. Siren was originally published as an ash can in 2007 by Chris Moore and Michael Lingner, and this version that we're looking at was published in 2011 by McGuee Baker by Night's Die Games with various assistance by Vincent Baker, Joe Acone or Asone, Violin Baker, Flavio Mortorino, John Davropoulos, uh, Barbara Threat, and Evan Torner. I'm sorry, I probably mispronounced some of those names. Are we giving credit to all the editors of things now because they're all listed here? Editor. What do you want from me? <laughs> it's now required. <laughs> It's not required. Although my name is in books now. Siren uh, is... Siren? Siren is exactly what it sounds like if you're not trying to make a pun about sirens. Unless you're really stretching for a bit in your game. I you're don't know. psychic and, and you're, you're on running. the run. <laughs> yep. Siren, unlike many games that we look at here for Parallel Lives, is a game that involves a game master. Thank God. And dice. <laughs> Both hey. things. In one place. Though there aren't any statistics. God forbid. I mean, technically are. There are probability distributions of outcomes associated with six to eight conceptual categories that determine the outcome of the scene, which at a narrative level is a interestingly complicated model of the factors and stakes involved in the narrative, which is possible because the narrative is canned and predictable, but in a good way. 
I'm sure Hugh speaks for everyone, saying that we were really disappointed by the lack of lookup matrices. You can't refer to, like, table 2C. I did not get to roll on a on a on a table and yeah. see if you were attacked by a bear or not. Yeah. I had to do that myself. Nobody rolled on a you table for in anything. In fairness, you don't have to roll on that table as the GM in Dungeons and Dragons either. I don't well, play Dungeons just and that Dragons. Am I some kind of nerd? If you want. Anyways, Siren is a pretty interesting game about being a psychic on the run. You're amnesiac because of course you're amnesiac. Amnesiacs. I don't know how to pronounce that. Amnesiacs. Things. Yeah, you're amnesiacs. What if you're just amnesiac without an S at the end? Amnesiac. You have amnesia because of course you do. And Animaniacs hack of Siren. I've really watched Animaniacs. That's really funny. It would actually work. No, it really would though. They have weird powers and they're always on the run from yeah. things. It would actually work. No, you're absolutely right. You could have a really goofy, really cartoony um, version of this and... That's our 2.0 at the beginning of the episode. Yeah, Let's here at Parallel run. Lives, uh, we are steadfast commitment to not doing anything in order today. Yeah, so I hope you really enjoyed our mini, mini episode on Siren. We'll see you next week when we talk about, I don't know, Exalted. <laughs> <laughs> so Siren is a, a pretty cool game just in terms of how light it is. None of us read the rule book besides Wednesday. Yeah, no, none of them have read the rule book besides Wednesday, so if there's any rule issues, that's my fault. You can write in. I read the rule book really quickly while Wednesday was explaining the rules. I haven't seen the rule. Yeah, so the way that Siren works on the most basic level is that one of us is a GM. They get to control the quote-unquote chasers, which can be, you know, like men in suits, or they can be occults, or in this case, they can be the police. I had various other options in my mind, depending on what kind of people you made, including the church or, I don't know, fae. But it could um, also be like the super police, like yeah. whatever. The chasers. Yeah, super police. The rest of you play these amnesiacs who were either test subjects or criminals or who knows what, who at the beginning of the game escape from a crash where they were being transported in some kind of thing from their captors and are immediately on the run. In the whole game, the chasers are in pursuit, the runners are running. And you run and run until one of you has remembered all of their uh, lost memories, or at least all of the specific ones that we write down on our sheet. And then you end it up and uh, we figure out what happens to you. Character creation for this game is, in my opinion, really fun and interesting. Basically, you show up and you sit down, your character sheet says, you know, runner, apparent age, psi powers. When I look in the mirror, I see, and I have questions. So you don't have to know your name. You don't totally have to know how your psi powers work. You describe a look for yourself, and then, you know, you have, depending on the length of your game. It recommends four questions for the abbreviated game, six questions for the full game. Mm -hmm. We went with four. You could probably do less, but, you know, it doesn't yeah. feel like a run if you just stop right away. No, that's true. And one of your questions has to be about your powers. One of your questions has to be about, like, what's going on right this second. And then your other questions are sort of about, like... Whatever, who you They're are. They're just for fun. And one of the things that I love about this character creation is I always love question-based character creation because questions are just so interesting, so open-ended, so probing. They provide often both character motivations and history and personality, and I love that. Question-based character creation is great. I can pretty much generate questions and a description of a character. You know, actually a description is usually harder for me because there's this impulse that you need to make your description mean something. Sure. And I was able to do that really easily for this game, but I, I can't always. I can't create player characters easily. I don't have any trouble creating NPCs, but creating player characters is hard because there's an extent to which a player character is some kind of avatar of you and like 
there is a significance to the characters you kind of decide to play, or I think a lot of people feel that way. Where should we go next? I guess we should talk about mechanics. I think the mechanics are worth just hitting right off the bat because they're elegant, simple, mm-hmm. and consistent throughout the game. Mm-hmm. This game uses a relatively straightforward definition of when you need to roll dice that is pretty familiar to a sort of abstract notion of when is it worth rolling dice in a tabletop role-playing game with the GM, which is basically when the action is particularly interesting and there is something at stake. So in this game, you roll four to six d6 depending on conditions, and the conditions for those last two dice are you roll an extra die if you are using your psychic powers, and you roll an extra die if there is a chance of being harmed. So you roll a fistful of dice, and then they come up with values, and then you allocate those values to between three and six categories on your player reference mat. You spend your high dice to achieve better outcomes in regard to specific aspects of the action, the most important one being gold. Did you achieve the thing you were trying to do? but also secondary things like, did you get hurt while doing it? What's the nature of your hurt if so? Does the bad guys catch up with you? How close do they get if they don't? Does something trigger a flashback and reveal a part of your backstory, which has the consequence of moving the game towards its ultimate conclusion when your backstory is fully realized? And do your psychic powers go wild? Are they under control, out of control, things like that? If you're harmed, what's the nature of your harm? And if the chasers have caught up to you, does anybody get caught? And then finally, do you disappear forever? Now, this is a really interesting choice because what this is doing is taking the sort of ambiguous skill test or attack roll of every tabletop game in existence and sort of breaking it out into many finely grained aspects in multiple different dimensions at once, which gives you an interesting opportunity to determine many things about the outcome before determining what the outcome is and what exactly happens. In most games, you roll a single die and you sort of know what happens or doesn't happen, and maybe depending on the number that was rolled, there's a slightly different variation on what happens. There's a certain excitement there, But the way that this game has separated that out into a number of different dice, every die roll is an adventure, it feels like to me. And maybe that's just because I was the GM and I really wanted to see how everyone would screw it up. But this way where it's like, oh yeah, I rolled a six, but two twos, suddenly like, hey, you succeeded in what you're doing, but there's unintended consequences and it's exciting. And I I really like the way that it separates out in that way. It becomes a whole mess of circumstances. And this game is about messes. And because the player gets to choose how to allocate those rolls, between the different categories, the players themselves get a big moment to build the next direction that the story goes in. It could be dramatic to decide that you failure to achieve this goal, but you don't get hurt and the bad guys don't advance. The player's choice when allocating the dice is actually a constraint on the GM. You get to figure out what you're prioritizing as a player. Is it important for me to succeed or is it important for me to not be harmed? That's wonderful and that's what I love most of all being able to do in tabletop role-playing games and that is what I hate in so many games. The dice, oh, you rolled this, your character is crazy and insane now. Well. I don't want to be crazy and insane now. That's not worth anything to me. It doesn't mean anything to me. Well, you're stuck with it, says every other Call of Cthulhu player ever. (laughs) 
Whereas this is very much like, well, like sometimes you, you have a bad role and you're just stuck with bad shit, but it's like, okay, I am gonna go crazy if this happens, but is it worth it for me to go crazy if I get to accomplish something else? A couple of things. I want to shout out to the Fantasy Flight Games Star Wars tabletop role-playing game family, which has an interesting and less high in dimensions, but I think similarly robust, different version of rolling a bunch of dice for conflict resolution. They use customized dice with two kinds of symbols on them, and you basically have two axes. One is success or failure, and the other is level of how surprising the result is. So you can have a surprising success, a neutral result, but surprise, it, it it's a little bit different Aww. than a conventional system, and that works well. Second point related to dice, it's still possible, as Carrie was saying, to get a, nope, nothing good is happening. The dice have, have divined that this is a hopeless it's endeavor. A pile of failure. You rolled six ones, but the odds of that, or the odds of a very bad roll, are minimal. You almost certainly get to decide whether you succeed or fail. And you almost certainly get to decide whether or not your character is seriously harmed. You may not get to decide both, but it's only the truly improbable result that leaves you with no choice between the two. And I think that that's definitely a really great axis of player control. Another thing that is interesting is the game ends when somebody has answered all of their questions. And one of the axes is always like, well, do I reveal something? So you sort of always have a dump stat and you're sort of, especially when stakes are high, you're disincentivized to end the game, which is in some ways kind of a pain because maybe you want the game to end because maybe you're tired or you're done. But on the other hand, it's cool to have a dump stat it's cool to be able to like narratively control when the game ends. And it's cool that there's sort of like an incentive to continue the game, but also you could choose to end the game and allow more harm to come to your character. You got options. The other thing that functions a little bit as a dump stat is there are two negative axes where you are trying to avert negative consequences, harm and chase. If you have two dice that you can put on harm and chase, you need to roll high on three out of four to six dice because you want to achieve your goal and you want to avert harm and flee your pursuers. You can, if need be, put bad rolls on the do my psychic powers remain under control axis because if you simultaneously avert harm and avoid your pursuers, your psychic powers going out of control is just fun. It's great. Things happen, the world gets exciting, and you can spend a bad die on that. This game does better than anything else I've ever seen in making things going wrong a fun and interesting part of the game. Yeah, pretty much every time that people's psychic powers went out of control, it was kind of a party. Yeah, no, we had all kinds Pop of interesting... murdering party. Well, yeah. But no, this game has a bunch of mechanical control for the players, and... It's great! Mechanics yeah, are great! Really I cool. love mechanics! Mechanics are awesome! Don't make me just, like emotions at you and hope that it will somehow be satisfying. I also love emotions at you, but that's a different game. Yeah, I, I don't have emotions, Wednesday. You locked me in a dungeon and beat them out of me. Hugh, I hey. used to work in retail. Don't talk to me about emotions. <laughs> <laughs> well, I worked in food service, so there. <laughs> oh, snap. So another thing that I want to mention about these axes is that for every result, more or less, there is a line that is who has the first say. GM has the first say, player has the first say, other players have the first say. 
So this is a place where the game is very, very collaborative between the GM and the players. You get to, as the player, make GM-style choices. Like, if you get lucky, you get to dictate what you remember precisely. But if you don't get lucky, somebody else gets to. And that's a very interesting point of collaboration, I think. It's a very interesting way for the GM-player relationship to work. And it's great. Making other people's characters is great. It's my favorite thing to do. T turns out you can make basically any game 50% better by having people rotate their characters partway through character creation. It's awesome. And for the record, it makes it real easy on the GM. I picked this game as a potential thing to play because I heard it was pretty easy. And we ended up doing it with pretty much minimum setup time, including myself. And it was very little effort on my part as a GM. And I'm not a very good GM most of the time. So it just sort of flowed by itself. We got to work with some basic conventions of things. And the players added a lot of input, and together we made a little adventure. It was fantastic. I'm not a good GM any of the time, and I would play this game all the time, and people would even have fun. Another thing that I want to say in big praise of this game is that all of those axes are on one beautiful, easy-to-read sheet where you can allocate your dice. And the player reminders for this game are so easy and so streamlined and so well-designed. It's very easy to hold all of the rules for this game inside your head. And even when you don't, there's an easy reminder. That's great. I was a little bit worried about teaching people the dice mechanics at first because just reading them on the page, it took me a second to wrap my head around them. But then when I looked at the sheets, I realized, oh, this will be easy. And it was easy. Like there were moments where we were like, well, how does player death work? Well, how does this work? Can this be harm? But there were never questions about like dice rolls. The one mechanic that is a little bit underspecified is harm. If a character sustains harm as a result of a low die being assigned to them on the harm axis, they become impaired and you can be one singly or doubly impaired which means you lose a die out of your rolls. This basically never came up in our game. Somebody got impaired a couple of times, but they didn't then actually have to roll. Actually, Shannon got impaired, and that didn't matter. Oh, it mattered for the plot, but the mechanic. Yeah, she didn't, didn't come have to, to roll. Uh, oh, but she did. She, she. I was trying to get people to go away from your campsite. Yeah, that's true. Or from your oh. I, I also <laughs> rolled impaired on my final roll. Okay. But that ended up going great. <laughs> right. But what counts as harm and whether or not you are risking harm determines whether you roll a sixth or fifth die. And that's, I think, ambiguous and up for discussion. I think it's a little bit underspecified. And it seems like you could almost always be risking harm. Like anytime you're talking to someone, you could be risking harm. Because of the premise of the game, they think you're a weirdo and call the police. Seems like that's always a sort of a possible harm, or you're found out. And it's obviously something that can be, you'll go with whatever makes sense for the story you're telling and the game you're playing, but it's a bit of a mechanical loose end, and I don't like mechanical loose ends, and there's no explanation of that. In fact, the fact that there is social harm is not clearly explained in the text. It's indicated, it's implied in a, like, call-out question-answer section of the text rather than being in the main text of the rules, which is poorly done. But that's literally the only criticism I have, and I can usually find five criticisms in 20 pages, so... I do think but... the Q&A format of the rules text is 
cloyingly cutesy. I found that a little off-putting, but I'm a grumpy, cynical, and generally unpleasant person. I think it's probably designed for people who are newer to role-playing games, yeah. and I think for that it's probably very useful. You're not that grumpy, Hugh. Not a grump, I just play one on TV. The way that this chase works, by the way, and I think this is a pretty cool visual, is that you have some note cards, because it turns out that the essential thing for all role-playing games is note cards, I found out making this podcast. Totally um, true, though. Note cards are just the best thing ever. Yeah, apparently. You start out, and you have a note card that just says CRASH on it, and that is where your game starts. And that is sort of a physical location and also an event, and you put a counter on there for each of your players, uh, or each of your characters, rather, and a counter on there for the chasers. And then every time you move to a new location, whether by rolling some dice or just by being able to do it, depending on what the situation is, you just add another note card right next to it. So eventually you have just this long road of note cards and your players will be somewhere on the note cards and probably the chasers will be like a step or two behind them because they're on the way and they're always advancing whenever the players do anything. And I think it's a cool visual way to show movement and to show like this journey and to show also the tension between how close the chasers are. And also you can just look at it and it tells you a little story. Our trail goes crash city warehouse, the bar on the road. Grand Point, which is the name of another city. Motor Lodge, Festival, and the National Park, where everything ends. Uh, In a rain of blood and fire. Yup. They decided the hyperbalance, not me. I asked first, is everyone okay with this being ultraviolet? I think my character is the kind of person who would just like impale a dude with a piece of rebar. And then we went with that. I also designed a hyperviolent character. I didn't think to ask that consent question. Well, I asked it first, so... So it's fine. That's definitely something that I want to talk about for half a sec, is Hugh designed a hyperviolent character, I designed a hyperviolent character, but Shannon could have designed a child. I'm just saying that probably you want to end up with, like, a tonal match, but you could potentially end up with a tonal mismatch. Characters could end up being more violent as time goes on, then like the GM is ready for, that other players are ready for, or you know, whatever. You, you just, you could end up with a tonal mismatch, which I think would be interesting, but it's a thing to look out for, I guess. Given that you're all making your characters together, I think there's a pretty good chance that discussion is just a thing that could happen while you do that, which can help alleviate some of those issues. Sure. Also, if you're both hyperviolent and one of you is a kid, you could like lone wolf and covet, or like two wolves and covet. I don't know. No, I, I definitely think that that could have been definitely cool. They're really cute. Like, they're both dads. There are ways to be both hyperviolent and heartwarming. Like, that's, yep. that's totally possible. The other thing I would say, though, is because the premise is that you are amnesiac psychics on the run, using that vocabulary, I think, is a bit of a pointer towards danger and violence, because psychics, that's of a different kind of genre. That's more danger, horror, paranormal than superheroes. But on the other hand, as soon as Wednesday mentioned it, where she was like, oh yeah, you could also have played Runaway Teens, I was like, oh... Yeah, for sure we could have played Runaway Teens, which also points to how flexible this setup is and how many tonal possibilities there are, which I think is an absolute delight. Like, you could definitely play all kids under 10, for example. We happen to be playing all middle-aged men. Honestly, I think it's possible to do this without it being hyper-violent. I think it might be kind of frightening because, you know, you're being chased by some kind of organization. But I think there's a way to do this without it being incredibly violent or incredibly dark. I'm not saying you need to do that. I think her game was just fine. I mean, I mean the th failure condition is your characters disappear forever. You can reskin that if you want, but I think the game as written has that built into it. They make you go to boarding school. <laughs> 
boarding school. I think no one comes back from boarding school. I think there is no question in my mind that you could play this game with kids. Like, you know, 10-year-olds, 12-year-olds. There are people who play Dungeons & Dragons or light versions of Dungeons & Dragons with, like, under 10 kids, but those people have the patience of saints. I'm very impressed with those people. Those people are nuts. There are, um, like, four kids RPGs I've dug up we could look at. We could play Dread House, which is Dread but for children. Yes. Uh, baby Dread. I mean, I am afraid of babies, yes. They're scary. <laughs> They're weird. They're like human maggots. They crawl and writhe and are sort of bulbous and frequently ooze fluids. They have such a nice smell. No, they're really adorable, but I like it's really babies. easy to describe babies as like a terrifying horror monster. It's true. They got no teeth. They have teeth actively piercing their flesh. Well, not for a while though. Not and when they're babies. Okay, baby babies. Okay, yeah. So next, Carrie wants to talk about her fan fiction. What a cool <laughs> way to introduce that. Okay, so here's what happened. So I'm creating my character, and I, I have a thought in mind, and I'm I'm writing things down. You know, I'm describing my character to my, you're, my fellow. You're players. reading the questions to me. Yes, and to I, I've all already of us, described because you have to do that. Like, oh, I'm a you know I'm a middle-aged man. I'm wearing like slacks and a sweater. I am sort of perhaps like magnetic or compelling, a little bit harsh looking. And my questions are: How do I feed? When was I confined? How many people have I killed? And is anyone waiting for me? And he looks up at me and goes, are you playing Hannibal Lecter? And I go, yes. Because <laughs> I was playing Hannibal Lecter. In my defense, I think it was a good idea and it went well. <laughs> no, here on Parallel Lives, we fully endorse taking the archetypes of fictional characters from media you recognize, putting them in a new setting, and having fun writing a story with that. Yeah, we're pro fan, fan fiction. fiction is great, everyone. <laughs> it was not literally my intention to play Hannibal Lecter. I was playing, you know, a psychic Hannibal Lloyd, but like... Yes, absolutely. He became was... more of a vampire character he by became... the end of the game. Yeah, because I wanted a psychic reason for him to be a murderer. You know, I wanted to link those things together. So I did. So what was interesting, it was we both made characters who were both actually criminals. Yes. Which wasn't necessary at all. No, no. When you said, okay, we're in a police way, it wasn't like we'd started playing. I hadn't decided that my character was a criminal, possibly a violent criminal, possibly working for organized crime until after we started and you said you're in a police van. No, no, I was, that's not true. I did not choose for you to be in the police until you both chose really violent characters. Oh. oh. <laughs> I just said I'm thinking about an ultra-violent character. I was just imagining an ultra-violent character who was also a good person because there's a genre of well, movie where... I did not determine if you're a bad person. I chose to this for you to be in a police wagon because you said that you were an ultra-violent character, one of half of your face was burned off, and you had injury... What's the name of your uh, Injury transference. Injury transference. Okay, but I think this is a good case in point of how collaboratively stories get built from someone seeing something, it has an association with them, so they add another element that they feel like goes with it, and you get something that's different than what anyone necessarily intended starting out, which is great and awesome. The fact of the matter is, I had not decided that he was a criminal. Like, he could be a hero. Could be a poor sucker the government was experimenting on. Like, there's any number of backstories that lead to you having psychic injury transference powers and hurting people. 
I think it is possible that during the game we could have found out that you were not criminals and that there was something else going on. Maybe they weren't even really the police. Yeah. Mostly I chose it because like we had one character who's one of the questions were, why do I need to feed? And we knew he was Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> How do I feed? <laughs> How do I feed? Sorry. We had one character who had injury transference and we had one character who was kind of a biker. Yeah. Shannon was playing a biker whose powers involved making people be able to hear sounds. His powers were being extremely charming. And also seducing charming. women. People. Cheesy pickup artist tactics. Not pickup artist tactics. He never, like, was... Making he, romantic songs play <laughs> in their mind while he talks to them. Super charming. <laughs> Needed to be taught a lesson about what Life of the Streets well, is really we'll like. We'll get there. Yeah, I, I definitely, like, I knew that I was in a police wagon, but I was like, did they arrest me because I'm a murderer? Did they arrest me because I'm a psychic and there's some sort of like round up the psychics going on? I'm not sure. We'll figure it out. Or we won't. In this case, we didn't. Which is fine. So we decided pretty immediately to team up because as we got out of the crash, there was an unconscious woman and Hugh took a tire iron and fractured her skull with it. She was a cop. She was a cop. (laughs) Fractured her skull with it and then his powers went haywire and he fractured a lot of cop skulls. And he made like a gesture and I was like, I'm with you. You and I are together, man. And we sort of broke Shannon into. I've been reading a lot of X-Men comics and I was just kind of thinking about like Magneto killing people and like waving his hand around and striding dramatically away from wreckage. It's a thing he does a lot, like (laughs) all the time. No, I mean, it would totally, like, it totally worked. It impressed me a lot. (laughs) It's a great way to make friends and influence people. Yep, it was great. We got on some motorcycles. We drove to the city. From the city, we went to a warehouse where Hugh, Hugh knew that there was probably stuff there that we could pick up. Because I'm a criminal. Yeah, and so this, this leads me to, I don't know, an interesting thing, which is he was an amnesiac, but he knew to go to the warehouse. So, like, amnesia is a really, like, flexible and interesting thing. And if you as the GM or as players want the amnesia to be stricter, that's maybe something to watch out for in this game. Yeah, I was actually a little bit surprised by the interesting mix of amnesia that the characters ended up having. And, you know, it was fun to go with it because we were telling this story together. But I was originally thinking, like, oh, I didn't know he would be able to remember a warehouse that he was associated with. Real talk there. I just slipped in the parameters that are usually what I tell players when running a very similar game. The reason I like this game so much, among other things, is that, completely ignorant of its own existence, I've been in the habit of running one-shot tabletop games with, like, whoever's around like going back to whoever's around in my college dormitory at 11 p.m at night on spring break we're gonna play a tabletop game you all can't remember the last 24 hours and weird stuff's happening go because it's a great lightweight easy to make up everything you're doing on the fly kind of scenario for tabletop role playing it's friendly for beginners. The GM can just stay one step ahead of the player and make everything happen. But basically, Shannon said something about, I know a bar. And then I filled in, okay, well, if we know places, I'm a criminal, okay? What am I gonna do when running away from here? I'm gonna say, well, we're going into the city, I know a this. Some GMs might hate that. I'm a terrible player. I'm very bad at playing tabletop role-playing games. You, you're a lovely player. Thank you for coming. Um, <laughs> I'm much better at GMing them. I just have problems not having godlike powers. Fortunately, this game allows you to have some pretty godlike powers. Oh, is this where we talk about psi powers? Yeah, so this game allows you to have psychic powers, and the definition of psychic powers is pretty fucking loose. Do thing with brain is basically what it is. 
So again, Shannon had, you know, these oral controls where she could make people hear things, make sounds appear. And limited telepathic ability to sort of pick things out or suggest things that relate to sound and music and hearing. Yeah, there was a point where her powers went haywire where we all heard songs that had really, like, hit us hard emotionally. Like, an example might be, you've just had a terrible breakup, and then you hear, like, the saddest breakup song on the radio, and you're like, ugh! Like, we all heard that song for us. So that was an example of how her powers would work. I think the important question here is, what percentage of the population heard R.E.M. songs? (laughs) I didn't. I mean, this being the podcast that it is, is it not going to be Apex Twin here? Yes, I'm sure I heard Flame. Yeah, I actually have some deep-seated emotional reactions to Apex Twin, but... Yeah, I think that's fucking fine. Both of them? My power, and, like, initially, one of the reasons that I was like, oh, I'll play Hannibal Lecter is, you know, I was thinking psychic in terms of telepathic... And I'm like, well, Hannibal's a psychologist. This will be fine. But then as it became clear that, like, oh, no, the definition's a lot broader than that, I was like, well, what if I can just sort of take people apart, literally or metaphorically? And that was really fun and really cool. And, you know, it was sort of up to me to make sure that, like, my powers were sort of staying true to who I was and making sense. Like, there was a moment where we were trying to escape a police blockade, and I was like, well, I don't want this guy to, like, tattle on us later. So I want to tell him something nice, but I kind of want my powers to only do bad things. So what can I tell him that would be nice and bad? And you rolled a one. Yeah, and also it it ended up being the case that like, as I was going into it, I wanted to be sure that I was using my powers correctly. And then it ended up being the case that like, my powers also went haywire. I caused somebody to go postal. And I was like, well, he won't tattle on us, but that's definitely a bad thing that causes harm. And uh, it was an example of taking people apart. Parallel Lives, the Cop Killers edition. Yeah, this is definitely Parallel Lives, the Cop Killers edition. That's for sure true. We killed a lot of cops. If you don't want to kill cops, don't have the cops be the people who are chasing you. Yeah, yeah. Be the cops. Be the have cops. criminals after you. Yeah, sure. <laughs> easy. Do that, yeah. Yeah, fucking mm. easy. Do it. Uh, having psychic powers is super duper fun. I don't know if I said that already, but it's really fun. It's great. I intentionally gave my character a psychic power that was narratively interesting and potentially powerful, but not just, I solve problems by looking at them. One of the things that I think is really fun about this game and about the way we played it is that it feels like pretty cinematic at times. And Hugh, the way your power worked was one of the things that I think felt really good and really cinematic because there would just be moments where, like, early in the game, there was a lock on the warehouse, and we were like, well, can I beat the shit out of X and have it do damage to the warehouse? And Wednesday was like, well, what if you can, but it has to, like, start with flesh? And so you just, like, took a tire iron to Shannon, and it caused the lock to crack off. Shannon's kneecap. Yep. (laughs) And then someone suggested that this was necessarily the case that the lock breaking sounded like a bone. Yeah, no, and that was just a really cool, like, cinematic and interesting moment to have Hugh acting in one place and the result happening in another place. Super cool. I also think the trail structure of the pursuit leads itself really naturally to the structure of, I mean, it's a road movie. Yeah, so it's definitely really easy to imagine places you've been and how you left them. So, like, it's really easy to imagine, like, oh, the cops have caught up to that police blockade. So it's it's easy to have sort of a flash to a moment of somebody investigating that police blockade and being like, wow... All these guys are dead. Yeah, and even so, actually, in the rules, whenever the chasers catch up a little bit, 
we're supposed to flash over to them and see how they're doing catching up. That's actually a really underrated piece of advice for tabletop role-playing games. In the Star Wars D20 Player's Handbook, which is the whole game guide, it suggests that intermittently you cut to the villains doing villain things and ominously narrate it to the players. I think recent editions of D&D give you the same advice. It's just such a good, fun thing that makes honestly makes it feel like a movie. Star Wars is intentionally trying to emulate the feel of a particular set of movies, so that's intentional. And it's, it's definitely tense in this game where it's like, oh, they found the place where we were last night. Or it can be a relief where it's like, oh, they found the place where we were like two days ago. So one of the things that's really nice about the trail is that because you lay out a specific set of locations and the locations are important to the game, you pick locations that are interesting and fit the story and skip the in-between places. You naturally move from a scene where a thing is happening to a scene where another thing is happening. The locations end up actually feeling like we're going to play X many scenes in a storytelling game. There's a natural progression to them because of this chase factor. My one issue with the uh, trail, which I do really like, is that sometimes it can feel like maybe you're skipping ahead too many spaces at once. If you're like, okay, yeah, and then we had a, like a little talk while we we're on the road, and then we ended up at this gas station, and now we're here. And I think that's just something for the GM to keep an eye on, probably, and decide what is and isn't a new card, basically. Right. And uh, similarly, it's sort of important, like, okay, well, I need to make sure to set up obstacles for them in whatever new place they're at, so there's a chance that the chasers can catch up, because you don't want to get them too far behind, otherwise it's not tense. I think a little bit of that comes from the fact that we were playing this as a fairly open-ended game, or at least I felt that way. It didn't mm -hmm. seem like you had a grand plan for God, where no. you wanted us <laughs> to go. And you probably could run this game with, like, more explicit plot hooks for the players to grab onto. Yeah. But because of the fact that the length of the game and what's important to the game is determined by what the players pick and write down on their character sheets at the beginning of the game... The most the GM can really expect to be doing is giving the players prompts that hint at how they should answer those questions. Like if someone wrote down, why do I have psychic powers, which is an obvious but valid question, then the GM might actually provide a lot of the answer to that based on who the people pursuing them are. Yeah, and I mean, it's possible too. You could you could have a discussion beforehand if you wanted to be like, okay, where do we want, how do we want, when do we want this to be said? And the game says, you know, set it in modern times about because that's how you usually do it. But you could set it whenever. You could set it on the space station. Like, there's yeah. no trouble setting this on a space station at all. You could be medieval witches. Yeah, I don't see why not. As far as, like, plot hooks are concerned, another thing that I really like is that they are not necessarily super duper required for conflict to exist. A bunch of the conflict that we had in this game was between the characters. We are all playing sort of volatile people. We're all playing criminals. We're all playing like fairly different criminals. Shannon was of a fairly different order of criminal in comparison to, uh, to me and Hugh. And there was a fair amount of conflict there. And, like, disagreement and face punches and, you know. My character didn't feel that Shannon's character was doing enough to keep a low profile and act yes. like a professional criminal. No, that and I came to realize that he was not a professional criminal and that he was a wannabe. A wannabe who really should go back to his middle class life and, and you know, just... 
He was just, proud of what he was. He was so proud. Come on. Did you get that from the pompadour and the yeah, sunglasses no. and the pink leather jacket? He's a good, he's a good person. I love him, Tim. Continue, sorry. I said uh, my character thought that, not me. I'm yelling at your character. Okay, okay. From the couch. Like, another moment... Terrence is unmoved. Uh, another moment of, like potentially extremely serious conflict is that one of my questions for my character is how do I feed and a person who needs to feed and doesn't know how is probably a hungry person so I was like well when can this come into play when should this come into play and eventually it did come into play fairly catastrophically so Hugh's character Terrence walks in on me as I'm like psychically flaying a person and had to be like okay well how do I react to this? And it ended up being like, all right, you're my bro, but he could have killed me. I mean, it's more of a, like, I mean, to cover up and generally avoid being blamed for any crimes occurring in my proximity. Sure. Depending on how you interpret our last scene, because that was the last scene, they may or may not have burned down a national park after that. Yes, we may have. Yeah. We did some crime. There There was some more killing after that. Yep. And not all of us people deserved it, but um, we didn't have any choice. We were backed into a corner, pursued by forces greater than us. Yep. We apologize to the world. Or at least Terrence does, because he's not an evil person at heart. He's just someone who doesn't have any better options. I, by contrast, am evil. Yes, you are. What else do we need to say about this game? So I have a couple of comments along the lines of ways this game could go wrong if your players hated each other. So the reveal axis sometimes allows other players to have the first say in answering questions about your character. It's worth noting that all of these are have the first say, not decides, and that all of the decision-making is supposed to be collaborative or at least mutually agreeable to everyone but you could uncomfortably get someone answering a question for you in a way that was not what you were intending or not what you were expecting and really you should just say uh i really don't like that answer can you do something else and then they should do something else because they're not an asshole but sometimes you assholes sometimes you play tabletop games with assholes and this wouldn't be great there's a section at the end of this book about running this as a game that you play at a convention And I think this game is really well suited to that. But, you know, you could always play with assholes. Yeah. Listeners, if you exist. Tell us about your tabletop gaming convention experiences. Are people at conventions awful? I should ask E.T. about this. Uh, Please tell us. Tell us. So how else can this game go awful? That was the biggest one Mm -hmm. I thought of. Yeah, I've already said that I think that uh, tonal mismatches are possible and dangerous, but they're also possible and interesting. Yeah, it does have a little bit of catastrophic failure chance. Like, despite what I was saying before, this is a game where failure is a possibility. It would be hard for all of your characters to die. The more people you have playing, the harder it becomes for everybody to get out of the scene because it's possible to both achieve your goal in an action and also disappear forever. One cool thing about it though is if your character does die, you're not just out, out, you get to become a co-GM. You just join up and you're also a GM and then we just tell the story together. And the other thing is that for a character to be eliminated, you either need to intentionally put a one on harm. Mm. And it's it's worth noting that that puts you to dying, not dead. So someone else could do something to try and heal you and presumably they can if they need to succeed. But to be caught, the chasers have to make it to your spot 
mm. to your location. Then you have to get captured, then you have to disappear forever, and you get to do things along the way. Yeah, no, the game is tense, but I think it's pretty forgiving. Yeah. The GM could be an asshole. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's totally possible. That said, the GM can never mechanically stop the players from succeeding. The GM has no mechanical tools in this game, really, at all. All of the mechanics are in the hands of the players, and the GM cannot stop the players from just rolling dice and structuring the story how they want it to Yeah, if that's a thing that you're worried about. No, the GM can make you roll more often. The GM can make you roll harms. If you wanted to have a hack of this game that was stricter, you could change the distribution so that it's easier to fail or easier to have more serious harm or whatever. But yeah, I think that this game is pretty forgiving and I think that like it would really like to be pretty forgiving, which is probably one of the reasons why uh, dead players become GMs. Good oh. news, everybody. Coming soon, my extreme general purpose hack in which I try and adapt the resolution mechanics from this game to literally anything. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. No, they're great. I think this game is so strong. Are we in for who this game is for? Who this game yeah. is for? This game is for everyone. Play it. It's awesome. Yeah, I think this game is especially for novice players, and it's extra especially for novice GMs. If you are looking to try being a GM and you never have been, I think that this game is great for that. One of the problems with being a GM, and I ran into this extremely hard, especially when I was running Monster Hearts, is trying to make a compelling hook for the characters. This game has a compelling hook for the characters. Run the fuck away! It's great. Yeah, and like I said, I was worried because I necessarily couldn't do a lot of preparation for this because I had to wait for everyone to make their characters before I could even decide what the chasers were. But it was real good. We worked together. We made a story. And like, even if the players that are role-playing with you are not really adept at being storytellers together or not really experience that role-playing, I think there's still an element there that would work really well for new players. So I can think of a really good method for doing a lot of preparation for GMing this game if you want. And it's basically follow the dogs in the vineyard town creation rules mm -hmm. or a suitable mm -hmm. hack mm -hmm. of the dogs in the vineyard town sure. creation rules to create a very detailed setting and let the players move around in that setting, doing things and letting things happen. Yeah, yeah brains maybe, in the vineyard. Yeah. yeah. No, maybe let them know this is our setting. Right. Like, And through whatever level of wall building or yeah. explicit communication Try to stay or in the setting. premise, because you do get to choose where yeah, the crash happens absolutely. and what the details of the crash are. Fucking rad. This is perfect for bottle episodes because it's a plane crash. You're on an island. You're stuck rad. on the island. Uh -huh. Yeah. No, absolutely. There are a lot of, I think, pretty cool hacks of this game. I think this game is like a cross between Dog and Divinity and a Penny for your thoughts. Penny for I my think thoughts. that's a good thing. No, absolutely. I like Penny and I like Dogs. Is it possible that those are two of the most positively reviewed games on this podcast? My long rants about Dogs in the Vineyard and Dice aside. I mean, honestly, I can think of a number of games that I enjoyed more than Dogs in the Vineyard. And that's not because of your role-playing. That's just because I'm so-so on uh, some of the things in it. But I think you were the critical voice great. on that. Yeah, I mean, I think we've liked a number of games. But I think that, like, I think we definitely liked both of those games for sure. And this being a cross of two games that we liked. Turns out that that equals a game we like. I will say this is the first game where I am absolutely certain that I am going to play this again in the near future with whoever I can 
can grab to play a tabletop role-playing game. Yeah, I would love to play this game again, and I do think that there are tons of fun variations, fun hacks, fun ways that you can change things up. This was not a superhero game, like you said, but it absolutely could have been. Like, you could have played Marvel Runaways. Uh, I saw a hack online where you just do Days of Future Past and you're running away from, I don't know, Super Sentinels. Nice. Yeah, great. I want to just talk about hacks of tabletop role-playing games. Why did I put the second one in air quotes that you can't hear on the radio? I don't know. Okay, Hugh. <laughs> but hacks. Let's talk about hacks for a minute. When we talk about hacks, what we're actually talking about is decoupling the thematics from the mechanics. I think it's a shame, to some extent, that more particularly indie tabletop role-playing game makers don't write a pure mechanical game. I know that's just not in vogue in the modern era, and then we, we think about, like, GURPS or Fudge or things like that as being, ugh, but Fate is the only thing I yeah. can think of it as a modern, reasonably well-liked, pure mechanics game, but even that is actually much more well-known in the extensions of it or games that use it than it by itself. Look, if I had picked up this and it had just been called Run the D6 System, I wouldn't have been as interested. <laughs> sure, I'm not saying that that's what they should publish as their product, I'm just saying it's a shame that people don't bother to, like, put that up on their website or, like, include it as a, like two-page of fine print appendix at the back of the book. Uh -huh. Like, I realize that maybe designers have a incentive to not make it easy to reskin the game and play it as something else, but the indie role-playing community doesn't seem hostile to that, and a lot of people seem to encourage that. So I wish people would make that easier to do because it really isn't that hard to do for a lot of games, and it, it just takes a little bit of disentangling that doesn't need to be that hard for budding game designers who want to start by trying to take a game and move it into another setting which is i think how a lot of people sometimes start if they're sensible people <laughs> and not me i think that makes sense that's a lie when i was like 14 i liked like okay how do i use this star wars d20 rulebook to play a different space game <laughs> all right i will reskin all these weapons and remove you know, anyway, hacks, everybody. Hacks. I mean, I, I feel like, and I cannot give you a good example, there's a way to hack a game that is not just changing the setting, but... Sure. I mean, we've definitely talked about sort of hacks where there is, like, the murder of Mr. Crow, where, like, oh, no, there really is a, a parlor murder, but it's a parlor murder within a bigger story. And I don't think that totally changes the setting. Also, oh. like, you know, I don't know, any hack where it's, like, the hack of this game that would be more challenging. We also do talk about just changing the mechanics to make the mechanics we think play better on the basis yeah. of our, like, off-the-cuff and play this game once. <laughs> yeah, of yeah. our single play session. It's true. <laughs> yes. We're professionals. Do we have any anybody who this game isn't for? I, People who don't like fun. <laughs> if you're coming into this and you're looking for a game specifically to explore, like, amnesia and finding out about past and stuff. This game is fine, but I'd actually say go for a penny for your thoughts mm -hmm. first. This game necessarily has a action or thriller setup yeah. to it. I also think that this game might not be for you if you want to like fully tell a story or like know all the answers because you're not necessarily going to. Like, I mean, you might be able to. But you totally could if you ignored the rules about how the game ends and True. possibly added Absolutely. more questions yeah. to your character sheet. But if you're if you're playing it on paper, like there are a lot of things like I still don't know if I was arrested for being psychic or arrested for being a murderer or both. For the very brief record, I don't think we mentioned when this game ends and you have one person has all their questions answered. 
what it is is you just quickly go to like a fiasco style wrap-up scene where you find out what happened and where you are in the future and there's a specific way of doing that where you get to select something about where your character has gone but it's not intrinsically different from the other systems where we've seen that happen. Yeah, you have a little bit more choice and a little bit more control. Coming soon to the roundtable panel discussion, I, mini episode I actually really genuinely want to have that's entirely about ending endings. games mm. and endings because this is a recurring thing yep. and there's a lot to say about it. Yep. Also, this game is probably not for you if you want a game where you have like stats for your weapons and stuff. Yep. While this true. game does have dice and mechanics and the players get to roll dice and make mechanical decisions that affect how the story goes, it is not a stats game. That's true. Yeah. The only number on my character sheet is my apparent age. That's... Not true. The questions are numbered. The questions are numbered, but that's different. (laughs) That's not the same as it being like a number. There's only one numerical value. How about that? Uh, I wrote my apparent age. It's it says work. No, I I did. I'm just (laughs) lying. I'm I'm bullshitting. Apparent age middle. I am sort of tickled that we all just we all just ended up playing middle age. Yeah, it was pretty funny. I don't know what to say. I just don't feel like a teenager anymore. It's hard to get into the headspace of a teenager. You should play Teen Witch. (laughs) <laughs> Teen Witch, yeah. I think I think you'd have a hard time playing Teen Witch. Um, yeah, yes, because Teen Witch is not a game. It's a, I think it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a weird thing that somebody on the internet tells you to do. It's the beginning of some weird-ass horror movie or chick tract. Uh, you should, try, you should try it. I encourage you to try it. I thought it was a very interesting experience and more game-like than you think. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Huh. I mean, you have a goal and you're trying to accomplish it, and you sort of get to arbitrarily decide. You have to whether... very seriously play pretend. Yeah. Willful self delusion. <laughs> I'm really good at that. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> that's what I is run. a game anyway. And no, nope. <laughs> bye bye. Good night, audience. That's I run, and we're Psy done. Uh, no, it's definitely Psy Star Run. So you take the complex conjugate of the Psy operator. I'm putting and... my shoes on. Hey, I'm Wednesday <laughs> Sophia, and welcome to Parallel Lives. Today I'm joined by Harry and Hugh. All right. It's been a loop. This has been a Psy Run of, uh, you know, like Lost Highway. And we're Thank you for listening to Parallel Lives. Siron is available for $10 from Night Sky Games. If you want to find the show online, we're at ParallelURL.com, ParallelPodcast at gmail.com, or the Parallel Lives Tabletop Podcast on Facebook. Review us on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher Radio to help more people find the show. If you'd like to find us on Twitter, the podcast is at Parallel Chat, Carrie is at Baroque Emotions, Hugh is at Ionic Blather, and I am at Wednesday Quest. This episode was produced by me with music by Kevin McLeod. Come back next week for a discussion long in the making, where we talk about the pros and cons of GM'd and GM-less systems. That episode is about a half an hour. Who controls your fate?